Welcome to Open Door Talks, a podcast series for independent musicians on how to navigate the music industry. I'm your host, Lex Luca, a music producer and DJ from London. I'll be talking to your favorite music makers about their journeys to success. Expect to hear a whole host of tips and tricks from seasoned professionals to help you move forward with your music. Follow Open Door Talks on your favorite podcast platform and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources. Welcome along to Open Door Talks. My name is Lex Luca, and I'm so excited this week to bring you one of the icons of the New York music scene, Junior Sanchez. Junior is a highly respected global DJ, artist, record producer, and music exec. He's collaborated with the likes of Masters at Work and Harry Romero. He's even remixed Daft Punk and The Gorillas. He's DJed all around the world and he is not just house music. He's got so many production credits. He produces for artists and bands. We delve deep into Junior's history today from DJing at the exclusive fashion parties in the 90s in Manhattan and being taught how to make music by a certain Armand Van Helden. Junior discusses his production techniques and the importance of finishing music his favorite plugins, how he approaches his collaboration sessions and how he produces for other artists. We also get into how he deals with his own artist block experiences. And of course, Junior shares his top three tips for independent musicians. This one is jam packed, full of wisdom, full of goodness, full of goodies for you guys. So let's jump right in. Junior, how you doing? I'm amazing. Thank you for having me, Lex, man. It's a pleasure to be on this uh, Open Door Talks. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us here on the podcast today. I'm really, really excited to get into the conversation with you. So let's begin. Please introduce yourself. Yeah, my name is Junior Sanchez. I'm a DJ, producer, remixer, um, sometimes songwriter, father, um, friend, and uh, overall cool robot human being i think that wraps it up in a nutshell when did this music thing start for you and what were you like growing up i would say i got the bug i was about 10 years old 11 years old yeah 10 years old 1988 i would say was like the first real itch of house music so i was i'm the youngest of six and all my my brother my brothers and my oldest is my sister. They all collected records. And when they left home, you know, their medium they listened to music on was vinyl. That was the format. And they left their records. You know, they didn't, when they left home, they just, they didn't take it with them. So I automatically inherited a mass of different genres and styles of music. And um, it was when my brother came home with his then fiance or then girlfriend, yet to be fiance. They're still married, actually that she saw a bunch of records in my room and she's like, Oh, you like music? I'm like, yes. And she's like, well, my, this is try to follow this. She goes, my sister, she goes, my brother-in-law's brother. So her sister's husband's brother, <laughs> I was a producer. And he, and back then at that age, I already knew she said his name is his name. He went, his name was Tony Rodriguez. He had a label called Sana music, but he, back then he used to go by the name Jose Chinga, which was like a, a Spanish slang and he did freestyle records and he did, he did one record, which is going to sound really funny to you guys. It's called flight tetas, like beautiful titties. And it was huge in the Latin freestyle circuit 
back in the late 80s, especially around that time, 88, when I when I met when I met her. And this is funny enough, this Todd Terry comes from that same genre of music. Todd used to make freestyle records like uh, Coro and Fascination and Giggles, and all that stuff. Anyway, I knew the record and I was like, no way. And I was super excited. And I turned to my mom, I was like, I'm gonna, can I meet him? Can I meet him? And they lived in Irvington, New Jersey. And I lived at the time in Newark. And they were like, my mom was like, yeah, you can go over there on the weekends if you go to church and do, you know, start doing your communion practices and stuff like that. I was like, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I met him. He was the first person I ever met. His name is Tony Rodriguez. And I went to a studio in his basement of, of his home. And I saw my first mixing console. I first saw my, you know, all the lights. It looks like a Star Trek spaceship or the cockpit of, you know, the USS Enterprise or the Millennium Falcon. That was my first real like life looking inside of a studio. And he gave me my first creator records. You know, he treated me very, very kind. I was super young. He was probably in his twenties, maybe mid to late twenties. And he would like ask my brother, Hey, when I was, when I slept over, can I take your, you know, your brother out to the diner? So we'd sit down and he would tell me stories of how he started and what he did. And, and his father was a pastor and he's making music about titties. And <laughs> like, you know, he's, he was telling me his, his trials and tribulations of that, like going through all that stuff. And um, I was just like amazed that, you know, this guy was even talking to me and I was enamored. Like I, I mimicked him. I like went to the pharmacy and bought like what I thought was the same cologne he used. It was that deep, you know, I was just like, oh, I want to be just like him. And um, <clears throat> that's the first time I really got the itch. And fast forward a little bit, about 13, 14 years old. So a couple of years later, he obviously had his career and I would go over there every weekend and hang out. But, you know, he was older and he didn't want to hang out with a little kid. So he continued to release music and I would follow his music. And then I started buying records. And then I started DJing in, in clubs in, um, in New York. I was about 14. I was playing at Limelight, Club USA. I had a residency at a Terry Moglier room by the time I was 15. And then I remember playing Limelight, which is uh, Peter Gacious Club in New York. And then a guy came in there and he was like, hey, he heard, you know, after I finished my set, he's like, can you make records like the stuff you're playing? I'm like, absolutely. Totally lying. I was like, yeah, 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 no problem. And he goes, okay, come to my studio. And um, his studio was deep in New Jersey. Like, I remember asking a friend to drive me and it, well, it seemed to, for me at the time, like super far, you're young, you're in a car. I don't know if you remember driving from, I don't know, one place in England to another. Theoretically today, as an adult, you'd be like, oh, that's not a big deal. But when you're young, it seems like it's super far. And I remember going there and it was in Dover, New Jersey. I remember that and going to his basement and then, you know, seeing his mixing board and stuff. And I'm like, something felt oddly familiar. And I was super inquisitive. I was like, hey, how much was that? What's this? What's that? Blah, 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 blah. And then I looked at a console and then I'm like, ah, man, like I like this console, but it, it, it resonated with me. I was like, what, you know, where'd you get it? And he goes, oh, I just bought it off this guy named Tony Rodriguez. You know, I don't know if you know this dude. I was like, so the same console I saw when I was 10, 11 years old is the same console I wind up making my first record on years later. So I, when he said that to me and I realized that connection, it was to me, it was like a real serendipitous moment. And it just clicked i was like wow this might mean something and i just went with it i really thought it was a sign and uh, that was the start of me kind of like diving into music
It's such a cool story. It sounds like your music career was was meant to be, right? Yeah, it was really, really weird, man. And um, it's crazy. I get chills. Think about it. I don't really speak about like I've maybe told the story very few times. And that's happened to me in different points in my life, in different ways. And sometimes I don't want to think about that. Like, you know, because you you know, you could say it's, you know, you're manifesting things or something, but um that was like the first time I was like, Well, yeah, maybe this is like is for me. Maybe I should do this. And uh and there was a snowball from there, man. It was just like things started rolling. You mentioned you were inquisitive. How else would you describe yourself back then as a youngster? Sponge. Wanted to learn everything, read everything, um, cared about music very deeply. I would read liner notes of 12 inches in the bathroom while I was doing my personal business. And, you know, till, you know, my legs fell asleep technically. Um, instead of reading, like people would sit and, you know, read a newspaper or a book or today, probably people are on their phone. So imagine if you're in a bathroom and people are on their phone scrolling Instagram, I would just take a stack of records and just read everything on the records, whether it be the liner notes, the matrix numbers around the vinyl to see where it was pressed. I would hold up the vinyl to the light to see if I could see through it, to see what type of vinyl it was. If it was, you know, if it was virgin vinyl, thick vinyl, if it was repressed vinyl mania vinyl, that's like shit. <laughs> like I just, yeah, there was, it wasn't one edge of a 12 inch. I didn't read and, and learn something from like who mixed it, who produced it, who engineered it, where was it engineered? Where was it mixed? Um, did it, was it in different countries? Who was, you know, who played guitar, whose instrumentation, like everything. It was just like, I just needed to understand everything. You know, that was the type of kid I was super like more and more and more and more and more. How did you go from reading liner notes in the bathroom to getting your first gig? Well, the gigs came early. So I had friends that were promoters in New York. Um, shout out to my friends, Matt B and, and, uh, Jamel Rankins. They were promoters in New York and, um, they threw parties and I was already going out to the clubs. Um, and they knew I DJed at home. So they're like, you want to play? I was like, absolutely. So I would start playing in the Peter Gation clubs, especially Limelight. And then my friend Matt had a night at Club USA and they needed a, a DJ for the Terry Moglier room. And um, he put me in there and it was a crazy room. I was like 15, I'd say I'm probably 15, 16 and, and uh, bringing in my crate of records and whoever had two crate, like crates of records, not record bags, crates, like milk crates. And, um, and whoever would carry my other milk crates could get in with me, you know, and I would walk up these weird stairs because Terry Muglier is a weird dude. So he designed this room. And so Terry Mugler is like, there was like stairs that looked like Tim Burton, like, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas type stairs that with no side of you would fall off your debt. And I would walk up to the DJ booth that was high and I would play house records. But I also, there was a very, it's a very high fashion or high celebrity room because it was that, it was, a you know, it was Terry Mugler's room inside this massive nightclub that had a slide in it. I don't know if you guys ever, so in, if you watch the Salt and Pepper Shoop video, there's a shoot for the artist Salt and Pepper. It's called Shoop. That video is actually in the main room of Club USA. And that club was in Times Square in New York. And um, I would play in, a, in the Terry Mugler room and it was like Madonna, all, you know, all the, you know, Angel Evangelista, like all, 
whoever was in New York and it was super dope at that time, everybody was in that room because that was the, the most exclusive room to be in. And so I was very adventurous in that room. I would play, you know, Plastic Dreams mixed with like, you know, a funk record or like I remember playing like Hello, like Lionel Richie Hello over dance records and over a house beat. People were like, what is going on? So it was really creative space because I got to do and experiment a lot, not just be like, you know, play one way. Because I was influenced, you know, as a kid listening to, you know, Frankie. Frankie was a huge inspiration for me, Frankie Knuckles. And when I got to meet him, you know, he he would live he lived on top of Rogers. So I I learned a lot of my mixing techniques from people like like Frankie and Roger and Tony Humphreys and so on and so forth. You know, um my finger never went off the pitch and I just, you know, mixed that way. So like it was good to be in that environment at at that club because I got to really experiment and, and have fun at a young age and it broadened my mind to to not be one dimensional. It sounds like such a unique moment in time. And obviously looking back now, we know how legendary the nineties were, especially in New York. Yeah. Did it feel unique at the time? Did it feel like you were onto something special? You know, it's funny. I, in the moment, it felt normal and natural. It wasn't until later on, as I got older and cemented myself more in, in, in the industry. And, and, you know, it wasn't until after I, in my 20s, achieving a certain amount of I, what I, someone, someone would, or some people would call success that I realized when my, my nephew was over my house, actually one day, and he was probably around. 14, 13, 14. And I'm like, what are you doing? What are you, what are you doing with your life? He's like, what? I'm like, come on, man. Like, what's, and I wasn't drilling him. I just was asking him, like, what are you doing? What's up? Like, what's going on with your life? And he's like, I don't know. I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? That moment hit me because I thought at his age, everyone went through the same process as me. Like, you just, you love something, you find a passion, you do it, and you think, and your life is figured out. Like, and I thought everyone had the same life path. Like, you know, I was very ignorant or naive to life because what happened to me was very different. And um, I thought everyone had that same path. Like, oh, you'll figure it out very early on and, and you find what you love and you go for it and you achieve it. And it's not. I, I realized at that moment that what I experienced was very, very, very special, very rare. And, um, and I was in a very unique position. And I had to be in my 20s and look at my nephew at, at his age at the time, you know, to go, oh, shit. No, it, it's yeah. No, it was. Yeah. What I what I experienced was definitely a unicorn moment or something very different. So, um, yeah. So to answer your question, I realized it later how special that was in the moment. It was just normal. You know. What did your parents think of all of this? My mother just knew I loved music. She was more concerned about me going out all the time. She was more concerned about me going to Sound Factory Bar or uh, on a Wednesday night, that's school night, and coming home late and not, you know, not getting on the bus and going to school. Her or being at Limelight, which was a church, and she's, you know, her head is like, "Oh, you're in a cult. Like that's not normal. Like you don't dance in a church." You know, my mother grew up. You know, she's. Grew up, uh, my aunt's a Franciscan nun in Brazil, still is. She's in her 90s. So my mother grew up in a convent. Her sister stayed. She left. Here I am dancing in nightclubs. That's a church till like wee hours in the morning, coming home, dyeing my hair, all different colors. She's just like, you're in a cult. Like you're <laughs> like that. So it wasn't the music. It was like what I was doing 
within that culture that really perturbed her. And um, I had to convince her and tell her, no, mom, I'm not. I'm not doing this. I do. And I wasn't. I wasn't doing drugs at all. Like, you know, my experimentation with drugs was later on in life, like later, later, later. And it was very minimal. But at when I found music and when I found a calling or I found something that occupied my time, my focus was 100 percent in that. And that was like really my high, my experience. I wouldn't judge people, but I didn't. I just said, that's going to distract me from what I'm doing. So I'm not doing that. And I also saw a lot of people. I would go to nightclubs all the time. I see, you know, kids in the corner. I would go to raves. I didn't try ecstasy until I was in my 30s. That says a lot. And this is, a, I'm saying something. I would, I, I say this to people. People are like, no, no way, mate. You're shitting me. You travel the world. You did that. I'm like, no, I didn't. I was just very, very focused. And my main thing was music, 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 music. I, another point, when I was young going to clubs, my friends were looking for girls. I love, I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm married. I love, you know, I love women. But that wasn't my drive. I wasn't going to a club to find some ass. I was going to the club going, I'm going to hang out in a DJ booth. And that's where you find me. And just, just, I had a different, I guess. And, and again, that's a reflection now when I think about it, because I had this conversation with a friend of mine before. I was like, yeah, I, I was, when I walked into the club, my brain was not, where's the booty? Where's the ass? Where's the, where's the titties? No, my brain was like, yo, th- what is this record? I, I want to go bother the DJ and see if I can hang out in a booth while he plays. <laughs> that was just what I did. So back then, what would you say you were good at? Taste. I think my taste was pretty good. And my mixing abilities got really good. Like, you know, I'd still, I still, I would consider myself a pretty, a DJ's DJ. Like, meaning I've never, ever in, in my life had a DJ set. Like, I don't know what I'm playing when I'm playing. It doesn't matter where I am. I, you could put me on Tomorrowland and I'm not planning my set. And some people may say that's a pro- like that's weird. I just don't know what I'm doing because every environment's different. You know, every space is different. Every you can't treat every club the same. You can't. I don't know who I'm playing before or after. So that's one thing. I just you know, or some people may say that's lazy of me. Well, you don't put time into your set, like. But I don't. I can't predict what I'm going to do. It's very organic. You know, I can make a left. I can make a right. I can play this. And it's not working. I got to go here. And I think that's just comes from going out and hearing people like Louis play and, and, and Frankie and, and knowing they didn't have any, you know, I know there's no way. And I mean, I know Louis personally now. And so I know he, there is no sets that nobody had a preconceived, I'm going to play this one into this record into that record. You just played records, you know, and, um, and you try, you try to tell a story in real time. So I, that's, I come from that school and I still hold that in high regard. But I think, yeah, my mixing and, and my taste was something that I, uh, I developed early on. What would you say that you weren't so good at? Probably production, because I didn't know anything at that time as a kid. So I was just learning. So I wasn't good at creating music. At first, I would need somebody there to do it for me until I got my first workstation. So I, until I, I started to DIY it, and that goes into me and Armand, because that's how I started to learn how to make music myself. I needed help. I needed, I would sit down. I mean, my first record I did, I was a sophomore in high school and there was a a person on the computer programming and it was all my ideas, but I wasn't the one, you know, sitting on, on manning the ship. And I quickly learned that I needed to learn how to make music because I didn't like 
telling somebody what to do. I wanted to do it myself. When I did that, it was like one or two records. And I'm like, nah, I don't like this. I got to get a studio. But I also had an itch. Like I wanted to get a, you know, get a mixing board and get a sampler and get this. Like, you know, so it, to me, there was no other option. Like I knew I wanted to do this physically myself. So I was like, okay, this is great. I'm, I saw, I see it. I see what he's doing. Now I'm going to do it myself. So that's, that was that process. How did you go from there to becoming a fully fledged music producer? Um, I met Armand Van Helden maybe 93, 94 in Boston at a rave. Um, he might have a different recollection of the story, but I, I, this is mine. This is mine, Armand. You can tell your story later. Um, I was like selling t-shirts at raves. I would, I would mock, I would take logos and switch them. So like, it'll say, I'll take the Burger King logo and it'll say disco King or some shit. And I would just make these shirts and walk around the rave trying to make some money. And Armand was DJing. And at that time he had, his name was DJ Aviate because he had also the label Aviate Records. And um, I went to him. I was like, hey, he's like, I like that. I, I, so, somehow I gave him a shirt and then he had said, I'm moving to New York. Do you, here's my number or something. It was like some, you know, but a, on a piece of paper, like a landline, you know, here's my number. I'll, you know, let's keep in touch. I'm nine years. He's nine years my senior. I'm nine years younger than him. So I was a kid, like a you know, child, child um, in my teens. And he was in his 20s already. So he moved to New York and um, and I called him and he was already living in New York and he was sharing a, a loft space with a couple of roommates, which we did back then because it's super expensive. He's like, hey, I'm having a party, man. Thank you for calling. I, I, you know, we, you know, come over and hang out. We, we, we automatically became friends. It was like, we were like inseparable. So I went over there um, and I remember his bedroom was in an old fur vault, like the door, it was like a huge metal vault door. And I remember walking in to the room and in the room was his, at that time, his baby's mom, him, Roger, and another person. And I remember walking in and seeing his, Armand's baby's mother was crying. And I was like, and I went to her, I was like, hey, what's up, man? Why, why is she crying? And um, he's like, ah, she just found out Roger did love dancing. So she started crying. <laughs> so I was like, oh. And that to me was so fucking cool because, I I mean, I love love dancing. And Roger was there. It was just a really emotional moment. And I don't know if they were on pills. I have no idea what's going on at all. I'm just, in retrospect, maybe. I have no idea. I, I can't confirm that. But the fact that he, I walked in, she's crying. I thought something something happened like emotionally bad. He's like, no, no, um, no, dude. She just found out. I told, just told her that Roger did love dancing. And it's like, it, it hit her emotionally. I was like, wow. I was like, this is so cool. And in that party, everybody was there from strictly rhythm, Gladys Pizarro and, you know, tons of people. I mean, the, the, the loft was packed and Armand had introduced me to Gladys and like, he had hugged me and he was like, Hey man, you know, Gladys, I want you to meet this kid. Junior Sanchez, he's the next kid, man. Like he was introduced me that way. She goes, All right, come to my office on Monday and bring me some dats. And then I looked at him, I was like, Yo, you know, afterwards, I was like, Yo, what's a dat? What's a dat? <laughs> and then um, I, you know, from then, I had a friend of mine who worked in a college, you know, meanwhile, I'm, in, I'm still in high school. This is, you know, and uh, 
I had worked at he worked at the radio station in college. He was the musical director of uh, Monk. Uh, I won't say the name of it. Uh, he was a music director in college, and I went. He's like, "Oh, we got a bunch of those Panasonic 3700s. I actually have one right over here." And that, I think that's the actually that's the one because I had a few, but I kept the first one that I stole from this college. So I went in with a screwdriver. It was like, "Sorry, did you say you borrowed it?" Right? I borrowed it. Yeah, it's not. I, I borrowed. I borrowed it from a college. Sorry, excuse <laughs> me. So I went over there and I borrowed this that machine from this university that he let me borrow, and he was the music director, so it's, it was it was his prerogative to do so. And I had my first DAT machine, and I went to our mom. I was like, "Yo, I got a DAT machine." He goes, "Okay." He goes, I, "Can you teach me how to how to use that?" And I pointed to his Roland W30, which is a workstation that eight inputs, eight outputs, two two banks of sample time of seven point four seconds each bank. So you're talking 16, 17 seconds at the max of sample time to make music at all. And Armand was doing everything in there until he got another sampler. But he taught me late nights. I would hear all his rings going. I remember that. I remember he wore a lot of rings. So it was like, bah, 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 touch your buttons. And I would just look at his hands, look at his hands, look at his hands. You say, da, 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 da. and you know, he was very tough because he, he would show me by him doing it and go, code, now you do it. I think he helped me arrange one track once and he would never wanted to do that again. He's like, listen, I'm not a teacher. Just pay attention. And I was like, I paid attention. And I learned. And that's that Roland W30 is my first workstation. And I did all my, a lot of my first records, especially my first one on Strictly Rhythm called Bionic Tracks on that machine. And uh, that's how it started. And I still have my Roland W30. I'll never get rid of that. It's, it's put away, but that's the first thing I learned on. What an incredible way to learn how to make music. I guess working in that way just forces you to be super creative. Is that right? Yeah, it forces you to be creative. It forces you to um, be clever in how you use that time. Like I would sample in 45 and then, you know, hit the scale down for it to, you know, to be at the sample rate that, or the speed that I wanted. So I would sample fast to save a second or, or half a second. And then truncating was like everything, like making sure you get your samples tight so you could what any millisecond you could have was like gold. So truncating was the thing in the, the in the 90s of any sampler. Make sure you truncate your shits because you can get back, you know, maybe a half a second. And that was like it was worth so much. Yeah, that was that was the way to do it until I got my first computer and had and saw my first doll. That changed the game. One thing that's impressed me and surprised me about you is how young you are. And you were hanging out with the guys that were, you know, nine and 10 years older than you. So I'm really interested to know how did that happen? Like, How did you get a seat at their table? It's funny. I had, I had somewhat of this conversation last night, actually, with Alan, with A-Track, because he didn't realize he's so he thought I was Armand's age or more. And he was like, wait. And I told him, I was telling him something similar to the story. He's like, you're only four years older than me? I'm like, yeah. He goes, shit. You know, and he's been doing Duck Sauce for a month for a while. And he, they developed a friendship. So he he had no idea I was, you know, only four years a senior. But I told him, it's like, when I first met Roger, I met Roger at a movie that I went to Armand with with a bunch of people. I remember him inviting me to Bass Hit Studios. And I remember looking at him. I was like, hey, can I go? And Can I go hang out? And he said, yeah, of course. I was, you know, our mom was like my big brother or almost a father figure at some point, you know, and um, because I 
spent so much time digesting all these genres of music from my brothers and my sister and reading liner. Like I just knew I, I, I knew anything from, you know, Marvin Gaye to Christopher Cross to, you know, Aldi Miola to, you know, to new wave to like, you know, revolting Cox, the ministry stuff on wax tracks. Like there's, I just liked music. So I remember sitting with Roger in the studio and he was sampling like loose, loose joints. I was like, Oh, that's loose joints or this, Oh, that's the, oh, that stab is from, you know, Tom Middleton, you know, Jedi Knights, blah, blah, blah. Just a stab, just a, uh. I'm like, yeah, that's from, you know, uh, the Jedi Knights record, blah, blah, blah. He's like, he's like, where are you from kid? And that's how I became friends with him. And he was just, and the S men started from that. So my knowledge was like more, why, like way more advanced than my years. They kind of looked at me like, okay, we like this kid. And I was young. So maybe I, I inspired them in some way, or they, they looked at it like, yeah, we like him because he's not just an average kid. He's passionate about music and he knows what he's talking about. Cause I would never open my mouth unless I knew what I was saying. I was, I'm never that type of person, you know, I, and I'll listen and I'll digest and I'll, I'll learn, but I'll, I won't say something unless I, I know what I'm speaking about. So having that knowledge. And I guess Armand saw that in me too, I guess, when I think about it, he was like, he related to me in a way. He just didn't look at this, this young kid that's nine years younger. Maybe he was inspired by me the same way I was inspired by him in a different way. You know what I mean? Then I guess that's where the seat at the table came. Cause they were like, okay, you know, shit, you know what you're talking about, kid. All right, come here. You can hang out with us. I guess it's like the, the young kid in the mafia table. Like, right, he paid his dues. He shot a lot of people. Come here. Come over here, kid. You're fearless, you know? So you've done the groundwork, basically. Yeah. Without really knowing I did the groundwork, I guess. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't really, I wasn't premeditating that I knew the groundwork. I just knew that I just knew what I was, I just knew what I knew what I loved, you know? And I knew what I was talking about, you know? Because I just was, you know, grew up around different shit and, and been and been in different scenarios and just digested music as a music lover, not like a purist. Who were some of your favorite DJs back then? Wow. Um, Kenny and Louie, Masters at Work, huge, huge inspirations. Kenny Dope, insane. Todd Terry, <laughs> beyond inspiration. And it's a blessing to call these guys my friends today. I mean, um, I'm still their fan, no matter what, no matter how close I am to Todd and, and Kenny. I mean, I was there when Kenny had his triplets, you know, in the hospital. When I think about that now, it's like we, we transcended the music and became real, real friends. But I always look at them and hold them in a regard of like fan first, friend second. That's in my heart, at least, because I wouldn't be nearly the man that I am if it wasn't for them at all, period. A lot of my musical DNA and human DNA is because I met these people in my life and I grew up with them and they inspired me in different ways. What was it about them and their music that really inspired you? When I was younger, I would say in the early 90s, 91, 92, 93, let's, let's say, let's, let's, just, let's talk about just Todd Terry and Masters at Work. How about that? Just those two people or three people. <laughs> I'm bumping Kenny and Louie into one. But they're all individuals and they're all dynamic and amazing by themselves. Todd was an early inspiration to me early on from the freestyle days. So you're talking fascination, choral, where are you tonight, my love, giggles, love letter, like all these early freestyle, very Latin hip hop style records, we used to call it, like the fever in the Bronx. That was a genre. Like you would know 
what that is by Shannon, Let the Music Play, or Joy Sims, All in All. Those records were big in the UK, you know, like uh, that. But those are freestyle records, Latin. We, they used to call it Latin hip hop. In the UK, the the freestyle things never got big. The, what got big was the early ones like Naomi or Joy Sims, um, Mantronics, you know, et cetera. But in America, there was a whole big thing. It was very black, then Latin, and then it became very Italian, and then it kind of disappeared. And then house music came and just took over. So Todd was that inspiration early on. You could tell. So, and it's funny, again, I had this conversation with A-Track, and I said, it's hard to say this, but the only way I can really have people understand, it's like Todd is like hip-hop's DJ Premier, and Kenny Dope was like house music's Jay Dillon. You know, and when you really, really break it down. And when Todd Terry, because house music was very musical, when you listen to Ten City and listen to Marshall Jefferson, dun, 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 that's a real piano being played. Got a house music. Like that's music, bass lines, instrumentation, like Ten City. There was, in, there was instrumentalists making these records in Chicago. But Todd was making music out of samples. He was sampling and creating. And if you listen to even, you know, Girl, I'll House You, or you listen to Gypsy Man, hear the music, he would arrange samples in, in a song way. Like everything, every 16 bars had a moment. Super inspirational to me because coming from a non-musician, you know, I learned how to do stuff later in life, but it gave me inspiration to go, oh, we can take a, a like a, a synth sound from Yaz, Yazoo, and just create a different melody from it and do something. He was like, wow. Todd was like the the person to say, yeah, we can make this with an attitude with tough drums. And, you know, he, he gave that, he gave it the hip hop essence. And then Kenny and Louie early on, when you think about their early, early productions or the early remix, let's, let's, let's just talk about their remix heyday, Trailer Ends, Photograph of Mary, Bjork, Violently Happy, Sadie and Tien, only Love Could Break Your Heart. I mean, Shanice, I like. You could listen to those records right now and hear the cutting edgeness of it, how they were experimental and they were just creating soulful but sonically tough and edgy records. And that to me was like, whoa. And that was a gateway of me learning about other bands. Like I thought, so remixes to me, Served a purpose. Like I never knew Sentian was until I heard Master Network Remix, and then I learned to love them of who they are. Like I, you know, I was like, oh, I like this band now. You know, Sarah Crankle became one of my favorite vocalists. You know, because I just loved the remix that MAW did. So it was a gateway. They were like they were the most cutting edge things to me. And when I would listen to Todd and Masters at Work, I was like, okay, that was like pretty much my. DNA of how house music should be made for the rest of my life. Yeah, they were dominating the scene back then, weren't they? They were putting out remixes, originals, Crazy. everything was just top quality. I know their remix fees were super, super high, but they were just exceptional on another level. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I can't get no sleep. India, I mean, India's voice, the fact that, you know, obviously at that time, Louis and India were, I believe, married or together. I mean, her voice, because she comes from freestyle too. It's really funny. A lot of, so when I speak about Todd in the freestyle days, Louie came from that too. Louie did, you know, Information Society running. 
and I'm running so hard to find. Like, that's Louie. It's Louie on well, Tommy Boy. And in India's first career before her Latin, her, you know, her success in Latin music is all early Mantronics and Louie and all freestyle. Um, so even uh, Mark Anthony, Mark Anthony's first records were all freestyle records and he did suffer Louie. And so when you, when you think about that, where people, where it comes from and to where it is, it's pretty inspirational to know the grassroots of it and how all these kids, all these people morphed from one genre of music and came into this house music and where house music has grown to. When you reflect on it, it's like, wow, it's big. What were some of the lessons that you learned back then that really set you up for your career? I was young, rough around the edges, street kid. I mean, I, I definitely didn't speak as, uh, as good as I do now as far as, you know, I was very like, you know, Wu-Tang mentality. I was, just, I was a hip-hop kid that loved house music. You know, and I love graffiti and I love the streets. I love to dance. I love the culture. So what I learned was, you know, not not to be so tough all the time and not to be so guarded and not to be so like, you know, code of the streets because the world's different. The world's way bigger than your block. So I remember at being young and being very like respect, respect, like, you know, being that the code of respect is everything because that's just how we were. Like, I, I mean, I remember when I, Kenny, Kenny dope, I think it took him meeting me like 12 times for saying hi in a, in a span of a few years. Cause he was just like vetting me out. Like if I was legit or not. And then he suddenly one day at central fly, he's like, yo, come here. And he like, you know, and I looked up at him cause he's tall and I'm shorter than him, obviously. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I could see you in this for the long haul. So let me give you some advice. I'm like, okay. And I'm like, please bring it on. And, um, but he was that, you know, in essence, we were similar. Like we just had this like wall up, you know, this wall. And I had to learn how to, it wasn't until I started traveling and, and, you know, growing, my university was the university of the world. You know, I went from straight from high school to DJ gigs. So I didn't go to college. You know, I'm living right now vicariously through my daughter who's going to college, meaning like I'd had no idea what that world was. You know, I dated girls in college when I was in high school, but to me, I was just like, I wasn't paying attention. And, you know, I realized, you know, you got to grow up and not and not be so uh, small minded and, and not think about it's it's not the code of the streets. It's not where you're from. It's where you're at. So I can't act the same way I was in Newark, New Jersey, if I'm in in, in Athens, Greece. Or I can't act the same way I was in New York, New Jersey, if I'm in Leeds. Or maybe I could if I was in Manchester. But I'm just saying, like, <laughs> you know, like, you know, you just, you, you get, you you grow up. And I think that was, uh, that's what I learned a lot. It was just kind of like, you know, just really having a proper education of how the world works and, and meeting different people from different cultures and different places and different accents and different languages and different vibes. But, and then one thing, the common denominator was, this thing called house music. How did you then progress from there to DJing internationally? Well, S-Men took me abroad. So when Sneak and Roger asked me to be in this, basically what Roger, or what, what, what Roger thought of was the, the invisible scratch pickles of dance music, of house music, which is like a turntableist crew. They knew I could play because they saw me DJ and like, and you know, go to our conversation before, like, you know, I'm, I was 
pretty pretty good DJ. And they were like, okay, you so I can hang with them, like meaning I can play with them and at a young age and you know roll with people like Roger and Sneak. So they're like, all right, let's form a group. So that brought me to the UK early. I was 1997. I was I my first international gig was Tribal Gathering in London, opening up for Craftwork as Yesman. Never played anywhere else, as far as in the UK or Europe. That was the first gig of many. And that's 97 before 99 when I had Be With You. So once Be With You came, which became, a you know, I guess a top 30 hit in the UK, um, that, you know, propelled my career in, in another direction. But yeah, 1997, Tribal Gathering, London, opening up for Craftwork, S-Men. I brought my W30 on the road, actually, too. It was like six turntables and my sampler. Um, that was a huge, that, yeah, you know, that was huge how did the S-Man start? It was very organic. So I met Roger, like I mentioned, like uh, going to Base Hit and we're clocking samples and we became friends. I would hang out at his house a lot. He lived on 19th Street and Frankie Knuckles was his neighbor, lived upstairs. So I would go there all the time, hang out, spend hours at Roger's house because his narcotic records offices were on the first floor. He, you know, his whole house was narcotic, but it was very beautiful loft and his studio was downstairs and Frankie lived upstairs. And I would just hang out all day and Honey Dijon would walk, run through in the house. And, they, and Honey and Frankie were obviously super close. And, and then, I, you know, Frankie would come downstairs and he, you know, he had a, like a pet name for me. Was, they called me Jenga. And I, to this day, I don't know what it meant, but it's Frankie Knuckles. You can call me everyone. And um, I was like, hey, Frankie. And then we had this like commune of like vibes that's, you know, hanging out there. And Sneak will come from Chicago and hang out with us. We'll go to Armand's house and we're all like friends. And then. One day we decided, like, hey, man, why, why don't we do, like, the six turntable, turntable list? Why don't we do what hip-hop is doing but in-house? Because we're, we're that good. Like, Roger could scratch, Sneak could scratch. I wasn't that really into scratching. I was more into, like, you know, for some reason, my, my ears were, were very musically tuned. Then I realized, like, I would play. I just knew I could pick two records and knew the records in my head and knew they were on key. How? I don't know. It's just something that I just learn to do and would do that. And I would play samples on my W30 and stuff like that incorporated into our DJ set. And it was impressive at the time seeing six turntables and three mixers, you know? Yeah. So it was massive. And uh, we, we had that idea say, yo, let's do the S-Men, you know, we're all sneak Sanchez, Sanchez. Let's do it. I'm the youngest. And we released our first record back on Narcotic, the original that we all did. That sneak did a mix. Roger did a mix. I did a remix. And um, that's how. And then, then Karen, which is Roger's manager at the time, that eventually became my manager, went on and said, hey, we're going to do a tour. And I think Budweiser or maybe Heineken sponsored the tour. And our first gig was Travel Gathering. And we had a and then that's how that kind of started. That was my first real foray into international DJing. I know you spent a lot of time in the UK after that. What impact did that have on your music and how did you evolve as an artist? Um, it was a fucking roller coaster, I guess. Um, I can say this. Once I started in, from 97 playing in London, then 1999 Be With You that came out on Mercury, I was in London all the time. I have a very deep connection to your country, to your city. London played a pivotal role in my growth as a person too. Like, hanging out in Soho or Old Park Lane or the street, you know, going to Bar Rumba, listening to Luke Solomon and Kenny Hawks, 
you know, play like we've seen Derek Carter there all the time. Like it, I was running around in London streets. Like well, I would go to London and I would just be like, I'm there, go to black market. So a big portion of my twenties in my, in that time was being English, like being this American DJ in England and like running around London, man. And going to Sony, going to this place, going to that, looking for this record or whatever. And, and though I, I love those times and I love London. And part of why I, I think London molded me in a, and helped me musically is because I realized the appreciation that the English have for soul music. And the fact that I've realized that the English really love black culture and black music and ethnic music. And I knew that in America was a little different. And I, so it made me really lean and, and look at England as like a musical ally or a musical inspiration to me, because that's why I learned about Northern soul. That's how I learned about like, you know, wait, you guys don't play the A sides, you play the B sides. And I was like, wow, there's a whole culture based on fuck the hit. Let's play the non-hit. And I was like, this is, that's what I would, that's, that's, it just sounded like exactly what I wanted in my life. And I started to learn how much, you know, England had so much deep musical roots. And I realized that drum and bass was a very English thing that I learned of. And I would go to AWOL and hear Mickey Finn. And I would go to the Heavenly Social, like the same shit I did in New York. Once I got to London, I would do the same thing, digest culture, digest culture. So that really helped me develop into the person and a lot of the person I am right now, too. I can't just say it was New York. Um, because I got older and I learned how to like, you know, maneuver differently and speak differently. And, and, you know, woke up in the morning, had, you know, some uh, black pudding, you know, shit that I was like, what's this? Um, and that all, that's inspiring, man. You know, and it's inspiring to, to, to be around a culture and, and, and see them embrace something you do. Like the first time I walked out of the Metropolitan Hotel and, you know, and went through the revolving thing and, or, and it has somebody asked me for an autograph because of be with you. I was like, this is weird, but I embraced it. I was like, wow, this is awesome. But I come back home and nobody knew who I was in America, <laughs> which is kind of cool. But, um, it, it made me fall in love with your country and, and, um, it made me grow from there. And then I realized this is a business. They build you up the quicker. They build you up. You come down. And, uh, and I realized, you know, okay, I'm a very emotional person. Like I, I gravitate to things and then, the climate's changed. You know, I realized, you know, the European markets change or taste change and EDM came and all this stuff. You're like, oh, well, this, now this is big. But what happened to house music? Um, I just learned that, you know, the business goes up, uh, it goes up and down. And me being a very culture based type of artist, I, I, it took me a while to understand, like, why the trends change, you know, or why this happens, you know, and. I just had to learn how to adapt and deal with with change of culture. And I think that one of the catalysts of all these changes is technology, of course. And, you know, when you're living through it, you're not realizing it's happening. But when you when right now, I ref, when, you know, you asking this question, you reflect on 9-11 or, you know, and how that what happened, those world events changed. But also it's the world events with technology that change the landscape and capitalism and money and marketing and all these things and, you know, putting a mask on and like, you know, I realize it becomes less about the art and more about how do we, how do we market something? How do we capitalize on something? How do we make money off this 
thing. When I didn't grow up that way, I just grew up, you know, I, I was like, I fell in love with an art form, fell into it, slap, it gave me a beautiful life. Then because of life and technology and cap capitalism is like, oh, we got to market this now, you know? So uh, I guess, you know, when you think about it, it's like, you know, it's 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 changed because of the, the world. I haven't really changed, but the world around me has. I want to talk to you about your track, Be With You, which came out in 99, and that was your first entry into the charts. Tell me about that record. Funny story, funny story about that record. So Roger, not to get into his personal, he can stay, you know, say his story, but he had a falling out with his then business partner and girlfriend, maybe fiance, and narcotic the label at the time folded i guess you know something happened between them and he you know he, he had to start a new label so i remember as his friend going hey man come on let's you know we could you got this don't worry about it we'll start a new label and i was very good to come up with names like i don't know i'll say right now i i came up with the name subliminal I, I helped you know i was part of that early crew that's a whole other story we can get into so Armand's, Armand's album's too future for you. I actually used future all the time. My EP that Be With You came on was Tomorrow, Future Today. I was always coming up with titles and cool stuff. And I had a good graffiti hand. So I told Roger, inspired by Arsenal, the team was like Roger's Arsenal, Arsenal Records. So I came up with the name Arsenal and I said, I'm going to do your first single on this label. Don't worry about narcotic, man. Like trying to break up his spirits. He was like, all right, cool. And I went home, dug up some samples and I, did be with you and a sample is from um barbara streisand and barry gibb off that album and it's 45 you know i 45 did and came up with this instrumental really cool instrumental that had a different hook in it and i played it for roger he's like i love this because we should get a vocal on it and at that time roger's label manager his name was jermaine jermaine hudson i think great guy um from chicago he was always hanging around, but he was also Dajay's manager. So he was like, hey, why don't we get Dajay on it? I was like, absolutely, let's go. Uh, I remember getting cassette tape of the demo that she sang over it. I remember being in my basement playing it for a couple of friends of mine. And I was like, I like this. This is really cool. Let's do it. So we flew out to New York, Roger's studio. So Doug DeAngelis was the engineer, came in, recorded the vocal, slamming, done. I finished the rest of the EP to launch on Arsenal. White labels came out for Winter Music Conference at that time. And I was giving it out. And I remember Tomas and Guy, uh, Daft Punk, got the record and we they heard it out. And they came to me and he was like, Tomas is like, Junior, I love this record. It's so good. I want to put it out on Roulet. I looked at him. I was like, bro, I'm sorry, but I promised this to Roger because, you know, and I was, I was always a man of my word. And um, I, you know, said no, you know, and it was already a white, a white label pressed by Strictly. I was just giving out white labels, but he was like, we, I want this for Roulet. So he didn't know that it was really committed to Arsenal or Rogers yet to be announced label. And it became one of the records of the conference. And then Mercury came in and licensed the record. And this, it, you know, the story goes from there. The only remixes done were by, uh, the masters at the time but you know that record would have been a roulette record you know funny enough <laughs> i don't know what would have happened if it was a roulette record but i remember telling roger i was like raj 
I, I, was, I was like, Raj, Tomas wanted his record for Relay Man, and I'm, it's still yours, bro. He goes, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know? I mean, I was honored and super like, oh, shit, cool, man. That's But it's funny because last night this thought came into my head because of the A-Track conversation I was having. And I was like, you know, there's that degree of separation, and I'm thinking about Tomas and that, that, you know, they actually came up to me and wanted to be with you, man. They loved the record that much. And it meant something to me. Just, to, just the fact that they came to me and said that and liked it so much meant a lot. Let's get into Junior Sanchez, the music producer. Mm-hmm. Technology has obviously changed loads since you started out. How has your setup evolved and what is your preferred DAW these days? These days, I'll, I'll tell you a quick little rundown. Um, I, I started on the Roland W30, which is a workstation. From then I went to Opcode Studio Vision Pro because I read an article that Trent Reznor was using this and I was like, oh, I'm going to use that too. I was a massive Nine Inch Nails fan. And got that doll, saw a waveform for the first time in my life and it reminded me of like the Rorschach test. It's like an ink blotch and you're going, what does that look like to you? Like shit. And that's, that's what it felt like when I first saw waveform. I was like, what? fuck is that like we're used to midi like midi notes like just little bars right so opcode studio vision pro first time i saw a waveform like whoa like vocal like a vocal waveform i was like wow this is crazy and then um pv bought them and it wasn't you couldn't get any type of like customer service for the doll and from i left that and this is still this is late 90s 97, 98, or 98. Yeah. And then I went to eMagic, uh, eMagic Logic, Logic, which is now Apple. Everybody knows that Apple. Apple bought e, uh, Logic from eMagic, German company. So I started using Logic religiously until I would say I, in 2000 ish, I got my first Pro Tools rig. And I had a really badass Pro Tools rig. I love Pro Tools. Um, there's reasons why I love Pro Tools. We can get into that later. And then, but with Pro Tools came a little software bundled in at that that time's DigiDesign, not Avid. It's Avid in general, but it was DigiDesign, Pro Tools. And there was a little company, another German company called Ableton that came in a CD. And I was like, it was Ableton number one, first Ableton. I'm like, and what was cool about that is that it had elastic time. I was like, wow, what is that? And it was, you could stretch stuff and I could make bootlegs, meaning I could, you know, take, you know, Pink Floyd and, and easily put it on a house beat, you know, made me fall in love with Ableton. So my life was Pro Tools, Ableton, Pro Tools, Ableton, Pro Tools, Ableton, Ableton for creativity, Pro Tools for quality of sound and, 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 you know, but I could have done, I, I, then I was super fast on Pro Tools and was as creative as I was in Ableton today. So today, um, an Ableton user and a Pro Tools user, but I lean more towards Ableton for workflow. So I look, I look at DAWs as canvases. Sometimes you get a canvas with a color on it and you got a color on top of it. So this is, this is just, I mean, I'm sure people are going to debate me on it. It's fine. I think this is a discussion, open discussion to have, just like open DAW. Every DAW has a color, without a doubt. Ableton definitely has a sound. Do I enjoy the sound? Not necessarily. Do I know it and I can manipulate it to how I want? Yes. Does Logic have a sound? Yes. I think the canvas it comes on 
which normally will be a white canvas, it's blue and it's heavy and it's base heavy and there's a lot of girth, whatever, I don't know, whatever arch architecture is within that code, it's weighty. Some people like it, you know? I don't like to have something automatically so heavy that I have to take away weight, like, like you know, like take you know pounds off of weight so I can lift it. I like it to have a plain E. I want to add the weight. Pro Tools is a white canvas. You add the color. It's very simple. There is no sound. There is no quality. There's just headroom, great quality. Now you color it the way you want. It's a white canvas. You want it pink, blue, red, green, whatever you do, whatever you want. In Logic, you start with a blue canvas. You're like, fuck, I got to paint the canvas white in order for me to get what I want. So that's just how I look at it. And right now, what's your studio setup? It used to be really, really intricate and expansive, like tons of outboard synths, upward gear. I mean, over my span of making music, I had an Altari MTR 90 24 inch tape machine I used. Um, you know, Pro Tools rigs with like four or five Apogees and mini Moogs, you know, memory Moogs, source Moogs, Jupiter A, Jupiter 6, Junos, 106s. I mean, MS-10, MS-20s. I was a Sith crazy, cat octave, you name it. Monitors, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm probably, I mean, not the first, but I, I was on Barefoots very early on. Genelex, I bought my first pair very young. My first pair of monitors were, were Tannoy BPM-8s. I'm always in search for the monitors right now. I love Atoms. That's my favorite monitors that, 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 that I tend to say, okay, these are, these are my like the ones that I'm used to the most. But now today, my my setup is simple. It's just my front end. Uh, everything I sum through the Dangerous Two Bus Plus. I have Monitor ST. I have a SSL Fusion that's going to my front end. So my front end is simple. I have a, a Townsend Labs mic that mimics hundreds of mics, which is a great. I used to have a mic closet with U87s, uh, SM58s, uh, C800s technology has definitely made it a lot easier to not have all these things before you needed these things. Now it's like you want these things. When I first heard soft sense, I was like, no, I have a real memory mover. I have a real uh, model D don't sound nothing like it, but like everything else in time, numbers add up. And now these plugins, especially, you know, like the Roland cloud, you can't tell the difference. And I I appreciate technologies now, not in the beginning when it first started. When it first started, they had to work out the kinks. They had to figure out the math. Now they figured it out. So my front end is simple, but great monitors, strong computer, good mic pre, good busing system, you know, a, a busing thing because you want headroom in your mixes. And that's all you need. Everything else is a tool. You know, if you don't own a Model D, a mini MOOC, you could just use the plugin. It's as good you know now it's more of a want if you want these upward gears not a need before it was you needed it now you don't need it what are your go-to plugins waves arturia rolling cloud for sure universal audio without a doubt and then those are like the main my main bunch i would say and then you have the, you know smaller boutique companies um like zplane um ozone you know and then you know a lot of other smaller boutique companies like cherry audio um you know the korg stuff is great mick dsp 
there's there's a plugin this this guy he does he does plugin for Ableton. His name is uh, Phil Spicer. Really cool plugin boutique. Slate does really cool stuff. Slate Digital. I mean, there's tons. I mean, I I look at like uh, plugins as like um, really cool tools and like you know oh this is a unique color like Isotope. Isotope makes great plugins. They're just CPU hogs, but they're great plugins. And I always like to use plugins the wrong way before I even learn to use them the right way because you never know what can come out. There's tons of great plugins out there and, and, a, and a plethora of, of creative tools that uh, uh, today a producer could use. How do you manage all of your music projects? Are you quite disciplined when it comes to organizing your files and saving things in the right places? I'm pretty good. I could be better. And I think if I could be excellent, I would be way more prolific and efficient. I'm, I'm pretty all right, but I know people that have their samples ready. They know where it is. And I kind of, I'm if there's a pie of like perfection and perfection 100%, I'm like 60, 70% of oh, good, you know, because it takes time. It takes a lot of time. And I don't have studio rats or, or interns or anything. I don't have ghost producers so i you know it's it's a lot of work it's a lot of information to organize and i'm also a musical add like i like to just you know back in the day when we used to sample records or make records i would take a kick a hat or whatever i'll create a project in my s3000 or whatever and that was that sound for that record and then what i did it was no saving it the floppy did it was like whoop, off because it forced me to write something new and have a different sound, not fall back to the same kick or fall back to the same thing or the same habits. It's a bad thing and a good thing because I wish I would have, you know, archived all my stuff from back then. But with that said, I really admire different records sounding different and not like it's good to be a great engineer and have a great sound and mixing sound. But I also love how Carl Craig's records all sound different. Sometimes, you know, sometimes they're impeccably be mixed and sometimes they just have a little grit that's like, ooh, how did that, you know? And that, you know, that shows a lot of diversity to or a different character, you know? And there's also something to be said for disorganized chaos, I think, because it opens up, it opens up the doors for happy accidents. So I know when I'm making music, I will be, I love to work really quickly. And so I'm looking for something, I can't find it, but I will stumble upon another sound or another sample that works really well. And I love those moments. Dude, sometimes I'm making music and it's so real time that I'm not even going into my drums. I'll like download a, a video and I'm like, oh shit, that, and I'm li listening to like a video from YouTube. It was like, wait, what is that snare? And I'm like, I'm taking it right now. And then using it at that moment, like in real time, because I'm just, you know, I'm not thinking about, well, I want the snare to sound like this. And I'm going to go into my snares and go. Ch -ch 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 -ch. And I don't have the, the capacity to go, oh, my snare, that's it. That's a piccolo snare. Blah, 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 blah. I know where that is. I wish I could be that way. I, I can't. I, I'm, I'm a little different. My brain works a little bit different. What's the process then now for you to make a track from the beginning right through to completion? different all the time. I would, I'll speak of just how my workflow, my personal workflow, not working with other artists. Could start with a kick, could start with a sample, could start with an idea, could start with a baseline, could start with a word, 
sometimes it just starts with drums. Drums will inspire me. So I'm like, let me make some dope drums and see where I take it. For example, yesterday, last night, I just had this idea to flip this old hip hop DLC. It's getting funky. It's getting funky. Ooh. And um, I just I started with that idea and I did that and I built around it. So it, it, the process is always different. Do you find it easy to finish tracks? Yeah, I'm pretty good with completion and arranging. I just have to be in the, in the mood and I'm usually in the mood. It's very seldom that I'm like in a funk. I'm like, oh, but when I'm in that way, I just get out of my studio. I don't force it and I'll stay away. I'll watch movies. I'll listen to music. I'll do something completely different. I don't force the creativity because I just know if I force it, I'm just going to not like it. Have you always been that way or is that something that you've had to learn over the years? No, I've, I think I've always been that way. I, I love to complete. Even though I love synths, I've never, I was never a modular nerd. I was never a knob tweaker because I saw, I had a lot of friends that were just super techno heads, super knob tweakers, and I would go into a room and they have amazing modular synths, great studios, beautiful stuff, and they never finished anything. And they're always complaining about music and you know, this and that. I'm like, well, you don't, in my head, I want to say, I'm like, you don't finish nothing. You're just sitting there for eight hours, you know, oscillator one to oscillator two to three to four, go in there. Like, like trying, you're doing shit that sounds like, you know, Dr. Who. Okay. So I, you know, I never had that personality. I wanted to go into a room and, and create something and, and see it through. I'm, I need a resolve in everything in my life, whether it be a friendship conversation or something. If, Let's say you and I, Lex, had a, an argument about something. I will come to you and say, hey, let's talk about this. There's, you know, there we're one conversation away from a solution. Let's resolve this situation. I just need completion. So that's just part of my personality. And that is one of your strengths. I remember a few years ago when you did a remix for one of my tracks, you sent it over at least a week early and it was really decent as well. So I just remember thinking at the time, I was like, wow, this guy is serious. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's, it's because I love to, it's like cooking. You can't start cooking and, and like leave it. Like you can't just be like, ah, fuck, I'm shut off the stove. I gotta, I gotta eat. Like I want to, I want, I want to have nutrients from this, what I just did. I want it to satiate me. I think finishing music is satiating. I also, I have a folder that says finish me. And even if whatever ideas I have, I'll go through old stuff because I don't finish everything, but I'll, I'll create a folder that says finish me. And I'll go before I start something new, what's in finish me? Like what's in there? Like, is there anything in there that I could just right now, because I'm in, I'm itching or I'm, I'm, I'm in a creative space that I can finish. So I'll open up a session and go, Oh shit, this was dope. Let me finish this. And so I'll go back to something that I started that I didn't finish, you know? So instead of starting something new, that finish me folder needs to get completed at some point. So I just go back to finish me and then I'll finish something. Have you ever had to deal with artist block type experiences? And if so, how do you deal with them? Um, happens all the time. Um, I deal with it with the same way I do when I'm not inspired. I just leave. I don't force it. I don't, I don't stay in a room or work on something if I'm blocked. Oh, I try not to. And it all, again, it all depends on what it is. If I'm, Let's say if I'm working with an artist and this is the time allocated to work with an artist, like on a product, like if I'm producing another artist and we're in a session, 
if I'm blocked, usually somebody else in the room will inspire the, the situation, whether it be a guitar player or a session musician or the artist itself with their lyrics or something. So I don't, you know, I can rely on, on an external. But when I'm by myself and I'm working on music for my own, if I'm blocked, I'll just figure something else to do and just go away because I know that nothing I do will help the situation. I'm just forcing a, a, a topic or forcing a, a completion. I learned over the course of time that doing that doesn't really, it doesn't really resonate. Like the music just doesn't come out right. And I'll, and I'll wind up putting it in a, it'll wind up never seeing the light of day. Anyone who looks through your releases will see you've done a lot of collaborations over the years. You've worked with a lot of different artists. Is that something that you set out to do consciously or has it been more organic and that's just how it's worked out? Yeah, just so how it worked out. I think all, all collaborations start with mutual respect for whoever you're collaborating with, artist-wise. So I love collaborating, uh, actually. And I love, I, love, I love making music by myself, but I also love collaborating. I love making music for other people. Um, making music in general, being in a studio for me is just home. It's, it's, it's my safe place. I love it. So, yeah collaborating is great. It could be really lonely making house music, man. Like, you know, you're just by yourself all the time and you're your own, your world, your own, your own worst critic. You know, you don't have really the bound people to bounce ideas from. If you do, it's another friend who makes house music. So they have their own thing. It's not like, you know, I'm calling somebody that doesn't, you know, my banker friend going, Hey, what do you think it is? So it's a very lonely process. So being able to collaborate and have inspiration from other people or other, other places is really cool which is one of the reasons why I started the Open Door songwriting camps. So how do you approach your collaborations? So I approach a collaboration with no ego, open to any idea. I'm never one to say, if we were working together, you're like, hey, let's try this. And I, even, if, if, even if my heart was set on something, I'll say, hey, let's try it. Why not? What's the worst that could come out of a trying? We try it and it's better or it's not. Or you go, yeah, yeah, man, okay, I'm not into it. Like, let's just try. So my approach is just always have an open mind and try. Try anything because nothing is, we're, we're not carving stone here. We can erase things and cut things and redo things or save as and do something else. And just try. Just just have fun. Not take it as serious as, serious as, as it is. You know, I think collaboration should be fun. And you should learn from it, from, from whoever you're working with. And hopefully they learn something from you. Whether it be a new new way of working, certain workflow, how to use a plugin, you know, it could be a oh, I use this mic pre on this, or I use this high pad, you know, a technique. You know, it's it's a great experience to learn something new from someone else. Something else that's really impressive is how you're very much multi-genre. You know, you're not just house music, you produce bands, you work with artists. And obviously the role of a producer changes in those different situations. So how do you get the best out of your different collaboration sessions? I learned not, at first I had to realize you leave your ego at the door. It's not about you. It's about the band. They, they came, they came to me for a reason. They like what I do. Doesn't mean they want to be me. So I quickly adapted and, and realized and respected the artist saying, okay, I'm here to make so if I listen, if I work with a band, I'm listening to these demos. The reason why I said yes to working with a band, because these demos are really good. I hear the potential in these songs. So the trick is to keep the integrity of the artist, only amplify, make it better without me putting so much influence on it that it takes away of their, who they are and their, of their musical DNA or their characteristics or who they are. So being a producer is different than your 
you're being a producer or DJ for yourself. You have to learn how to enhance somebody else's art without interfering in their art, without taking away who they are or without changing them. You know, it's about helping it be better without destroying the essence of what the musical DNA of that artist is. And what are your techniques for doing that? Working with people you want to work with, working with people that you love what it is that inspires you, working with artists that bring out the best in me and not like me listening to something. Oh shit, this needs a lot of work. Like I'm going to, I'm going to have to change. Like this is, you know, you have to have respect for the artist you're working with. So I think that's rule number one. So then when, once you find an artist you want to work with and you're collaborating or you're producing them, they did about 95% of the work. You're just like now saying, Hey, this is awesome. I just maybe hear more dynamic drums and, you know, maybe, you know, if you're working with a writer, like, I don't know, maybe that hook is actually the bridge and that bridge is the hook. Let's try it that way. Let's see how it is. What do you think? I don't want to rewrite your story, but can we try it and see if it works? Like things, just suggestions and then technical things like, you know, studio, how it sounds, being dynamic. Should we change this kick? A better synth. Okay. You have this, I hear this synth line you put in. I know you didn't want to use that synth. Let's, you know, maybe that Jupiter, let's use this patch. Things like that. I mean, I think that's what that's what producing is when you're working collaborating with with bands or artists that already have their vision. That's who they are. You know, you can't you can't come in, you know, and change like Rod Tepperton didn't change Michael Jackson. He's Michael Jackson. You know, he just added a little heat wave in there. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Is there a particular track or a remix that you've done over the years that you're especially proud of? Um, there's a few. Um, I love. I did a remix for Gorillaz there that uh, was the version that was used here in the U.S. on rock radio. I'm really proud of that one because I remember doing it. Sean Ryder's on it. I loved Happy Mondays. I loved the record. I redid the record from the ground up. I remember the A&R at Virgin calling me. His name is David Walter. And he's like, hey, we really need a remix for this record that will resonate with alternative radio. Do you think you could do it? I was like, yeah sent it to me and it was there and um new drums new guitars new bass new everything i built the whole record around you know those vocals and and every time i hear it i was like wow i, I did a great job on that record and it makes me proud and i remember mixing it on a uh, uh an amec big i had an amec big at the time and i remember that time doing that record and then uh yeah, that was probably, I mean, if, if there's one, I mean, there's a, a lot, but that's one record that your listeners could hear and really go, oh, shit. If they know the original there and hear mine, you go, okay, this is, this is wicked. Yeah, I should say, actually, we have a Spotify playlist where we're going to add all of the music that has been spoken about today in, this, in the playlist. So make sure you go and check that out. And it's going to feature the music from today's conversation and music from all of the other conversations here on the Open Door Talks podcast. And obviously, Gorillaz, were just immense damon Albarn is nothing short of a musical genius yeah apparently they told me in the u.s my remix helped sell a couple hundred thousand copies more so that's pretty cool i mean i you know obviously you know it was a flat fee it's not really about the money but the fact that there was my mix that you know helped them you know kick ass in the u.s a little bit more that it was really cool i like that let's talk about djing how do you describe the role of a dj the role of a DJ is one of, for me, 
you're a storyteller. You're there, yes, to provide a good time to people, but I'm not an all-format DJ. I'm not a jukebox. I would hope that DJing for me I hold as an art form and as a standard of of taste. And um, when I play, it's a reflection of who I am. And I hope that the punters or the people there are there to listen to me because they understand what I do. So there's different DJings, you know, and to me is I still hold it as an art form and it's like, you know, it's a reflection of my personality. Yeah, I'm the same as you, man. I don't plan my DJ sets and I don't think DJs should. Obviously, each to their own. Everyone can do what they want. Yeah. But what do you think goes into becoming a good DJ? Staying true, uh, being very creative, um, understand, you know, understanding my records, knowing my records, listening to them outside of just DJing them, understanding what's currently going on and, and, and knowing that it's not just about the new records. Some records are, you can play old records. So it's a mixture of both. The color palette of a DJ bag should be very vast. It should never be one dimensional. You shouldn't just have banger, 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 banger. So to me, it's just having a wide spectrum of, of wide palette of colors and styles and different things. Like, you know, I can play a call Craig record into, you know, something a little techie. And then it's just how you do it. It's like, it's not what you play is how you play it, you know? It's just, if there's a moment for every record, a record could bomb played at the wrong time, but it could work at the right moment, a flamenco ballad at the right moment, at the right time, in the right essence, and the right feeling would make people cry. So you just got to know, you got to, you got to really go, Hey, oh yeah, this right here would be perfect. You know? And it's just knowing your music. Let's talk about A&R. I know you got into it pretty young. Like, what's your experiences of it? And what do you think goes into making a really good A&R? Well, when I first started doing A&R, it was like more, okay, can you, so being a selector, the same way I DJ, just can you select dope records? I realized that artists and repertoire has changed. But, you know, when I was being A&R, like from, with Gladys Pizarro, she would like, she would make suggestions and, you know, you were like, oh, I got to, got to listen to her because I want this record to be out. But you, you quick realize that uh, a lot of A&Rs, you know, it's really, they're just their taste. They're not it's really technical and not really technically know how to make records. They just not have taste like Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin doesn't, as a producer, he's not really a technical person. He just has good taste. When I A&R, I try not to put my producer producer's hat on because I remember how I felt when I was being critiqued by someone that I thought shouldn't be critiquing me. Like if, if you're so dope, why don't you make records? That's the attitude I had when I was a kid. Uh, <laughs> but um, when, a, when a record comes to me and I'm like, this is really good, I would make a suggestion, but I, I want the suggestion to be non-intrusive to the, to the work itself. I want to say, hey, change the vocalist. I don't like her. She sucks. No, I would be more like, hey, you know, maybe that bass is too loud or something, or, or it's just technical things. Because I like the artist to be the artist, and I don't want to intrude in their artistry. Like a lot of A and R's come in, and it's an ego thing for them. They want something, even if the record is perfect. They say something just to say something, just to say that they added something to this piece of work. And I don't like that. I don't think that's necessary. So these days you have two record labels. You've got Brobot and Culture. How do you run those two labels? I run it very easy. 
um, because I try not to complicate the process when it runs running labels. Like I, if I'm a fan of your work and I like what you do and you give me an EP, I'm going to trust it. If I like it, we're going to release it. I'm not going to go back to you and go, Hey, that, you know, maybe you should do the kid. Like I'll speak to you as a friend and we, we could talk tech talk outside of the art, but if I like your art, I'm, I'm going to believe in it. And, I, and that's just how I've always been. Like, Imagine somebody went and nitpicked Kenny Dope and and Louie for Only Love Can Break Your Heart, the remix. When you listen to that, there's a click on the, uh, there's a click. The, the, the kick wasn't truncated right. And it sounds like it's a fuck up, which it is because I've, I've talked to Kenny about it. But he's like, but that's just what it was. It's just, it's the essence of it. You know, sometimes you got to just leave things the way they are. They're, they're called the perfect imperfections. And that sometimes that's what makes tracks unique and makes things great everything can't sound the same we're in a culture of sample packs because of sample packs everything sounds the same it's cookie cutter and i like things to have their own unique sound print which i say sound print is like a fingerprint everyone individually has their own fingerprint thus they should have their own sound print and i embrace people's creativity and that's how i anr and from the labels is there a particular setback or challenge you've experienced over the years that you've learned a lot from setbacks I encountered is my own expectations of how, what success is. Like, you know, you have these expectations for yourself that you want to keep there. And then when you let that go, when you realize that that really doesn't matter, the art matters and what, how you feel about yourself and how accomplished you feel and what you do this up here, all these, all this weight that you put on you doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's okay to, to not be, the shit all the time or be the best just it's okay it's okay to just be you be be a person that makes music and it doesn't have to serve a purpose all the time you know just enjoy it you know because that was a setback for me a lot it was like being constantly trying to like one-up myself or be better than i was before or be better than this record or be better than that or be a great producer or be a great collaborator or, or man i want to do this with this band and i want to you know it's okay to just enjoy whatever that is and accomplish it and move on and not, it doesn't have to be, you know, the best shit in the world all the time. I learned that Rome wasn't built in a day. Careers have their ups and downs. You know, it's not a, a, a race. It's a marathon, um, slow and steady patience. And it's okay to not be, the talk of the music community all the time. It's okay to, it's okay for your career to go like this because that's how most careers go. It's very, very hard to have a trajectory that's like this and stay exponentially on a climb and never having a decline. It just doesn't exist. So I learned how to ac accept the process of life and embrace it and enjoy it and not let it be such a, a, a burden on my creative mind. What do you do when tracks don't do as well as you think they would do? Keep it moving. It's in the past. I had to learn. You got to let it go. It's, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't, you can't dwell on it. You can't shoulda, coulda, woulda. There's nothing to do. You have to, you have to move on. And that moment in time was that moment in time. It was an experience. It was a moment. It was a process. Did you, you know, I learned to enjoy that moment and, and take that as a learning lesson or, or a creative lesson and just move on. 
Because if, if you're going to dwell on everything that didn't happen, you'll be dwelling for a long time. Very true. Social media, love it or hate it? Um, both. Equally. I think it's a great tool. It's amazing for what it's done for us and the culture. And, you know, and, you know, as a tool itself, it's a great unifier. It's giving artists opportunities they never would have had before, especially independent artists. But I also think there with everything great comes a degree of bad. So, you know, it's how you use it. I mean, for creatives, we use it one way. There's kids out there that are using platforms and the dopamine levels of what they're of the likes and this and that, that's a whole other experience for them. I don't think that's good. But that that affects us in the same way. You know, we're all we're artists. We love to be we love accolades. We love claps. Yay. You know, I, I look at it in a way that it's a necessary evil. And I understand and I love that. Look at my space. What's funny about technology is it comes and goes. And it's always gonna it's always gonna evolve and get either better or it's going to become whatever it becomes. Because we can sit here and talk about MySpace or Friendster or all these platforms that came prior, or you know, the first Serato, you know, tractor, pre-tractor tractor. But these are all tools. It's how you use it and how you're how you use it in your world to be more creative or to enhance or amplify your art. I don't think it should leave lead your world or lead your art or creativity. I think you should just I personally use it as a tool. I don't let it dominate my life. How do you approach it then? Do you plan out your socials meticulously or do you just do it spontaneously on the fly? Spontaneous. I don't have a social media manager. I mean, my, my managers obviously are very keen on me being active. I try to do the best I can to be authentic and feed the algorithm as much as I can. But there's times where I don't post. There's times when I don't. And you know, something that's a choice that I made that I've lived with and I have to be happy with. I'm not here trying to you know, I understand how important it is and I get it. But again, I don't want it to affect my everyday life or my everyday artistry because I'm here. I know my art's here. I know that I love what I do. Tomorrow, Facebook could be sold to another company or could fold or go or, or somebody else could come some another Instagram that's better. These platforms come and go and we have to adapt or die. But I rather adapt but still live and and live live with it and and not live for it you know so i'll live with it i'll use it i'll find the good in it because i find i try to find the good in everything but i'm not going to let it become my sole purpose of who i am and why i'm making music junior we're coming to the end of the conversation what are your top three tips for independent musicians I would say my top two tips are authenticity, create your own sound print or try to really find who you are and what you want to sound like. And if you're going to be and use these tools today that you that you grow that they grew up with, so it's going to be very normal for them to use all these platforms. Be authentic. Don't let it rule you. Don't let it use you. You use them. So if you are growing up in a generation with all these platforms, you're the user. Don't let these platforms use you because then you're, then it's just, it's a, it's a path to destruction. What a great place to finish. Junior Sanchez, thank you so much for joining us here on the Open Door Talks podcast. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And this is super fun. And um, 
understand I've always been a huge admirer of, of your work too, man. You're, you're a badass, badass musician and, a, and a, an amazing human. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Open Door Talks today. If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the love and share it with a friend. We've also got a Spotify playlist featuring the music from the podcast. So make sure you check that out and head to opendoortalks.com for more information and resources.